Chapter 14 of The Radio Beasts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Daryl Hansen. The Radio Beasts by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 14 Portheris. Cabot, the voice continued, do you not know me? Do you not recognize him who rescued you from the spider web and who afterwards spared your life near Sultona, although you had robbed his honey store? It is I, Portheris, who speak to you. Put down your gun and give me help, or I perish. There could be no longer any doubt as to the source of that mysterious voice. It was the whistling bee who was speaking. Cabot sheathed his weapon. Switching his controls back to the normal range of Cupian's speech, he instructed Hababu to put up his weapon likewise. Ha, who had heard nothing, was much mystified, but nevertheless obeyed his superior. Switching to the bee's wavelength again, Cabot said, Portheris, once you spared me, a life for a life. I am yours to command. How badly are you hurt? I cannot exactly tell, but I think and hope that it is nothing more than a broken wing joint. At Cupian wavelength, Cabot then asked, Is there, with our army, any one versed in insect ailments? There is, Ha replied. For my aid, Imtel, studied such under the ant-men at Mooney. But surely you do not contemplate helping this bee. For it is well known that the whistling bees, although unwittingly they are assisting us in this war, yet nevertheless do not themselves distinguish between Cupians and Formians as enemies. This bee is a friend of mine, the Earthman asserted, and will not hurt Imsel if I tell it not to. Quick, send for Imsel, for if he can save the life of this whistler, I believe that we are about to receive an important accession to our forces. But Ha was still unconvinced. How can you tell him? Whistling bees cannot talk. I can whistle, though, laconically replied his superior. So a private was sent on the double quick for Emsel. The veterinarian. When he arrived, a few paraparts later, approached the wounded insect most gingerly. But finally, his professional curiosity got the better of him, and he plunged into his work. It was the first time that any physician, either Cupian or Formian, had ever examined a live bee. And accordingly, it was a great day for science. Imsel's inspection convinced him that all that was amiss was a broken wing and shock, and that with care, Portheris would entirely recover. So a huge litter was improvised. Then came the question of getting the enormous creature onto this litter. He was too weak to be of very much assistance, but by dint of great effort, and much prying by means of poles, and some kicking by the bee's own legs, they finally got him on. Then six men grasped each end of each handle, 
and bore the striped creature in triumph to headquarters, where he excited the wonder of the entire staff, and not a little fear. To appreciate the situation fully, we must use an earthly analogy. Imagine a party of British officers hunting in the jungles of India, in the company of a near-human creature from another planet, say Mars, for instance, and coming upon a wounded man-eating tiger. Imagine the man from the skies talking in apparent silence with the tiger, and then informing the astonished hunters that the tiger is a friend of his, and must be brought into camp and treated for his wounds. How could they know that the ferocious beast would not turn and devour them when cured, or even during the process? Only a supreme confidence in the man from the other planet would induce them to go through with the program. But the Cupians had just such a trust in Miles Cabot, and so they dared to risk befriending the bee. Emsel set the wing joint in a splint, and several green cows were driven in for the bee's delectation. After that, he slept. When Portheris had rested, Cabot called in Toron, Hababu, Poblath, and Butedon, and, alternately tuning to the two ranges of speech, broached to them his plan. Portheris, he asked the bee, how is it that you know our language, although your range is so different from ours? That question has oft been discussed among us, Portheris replied, and we have always regarded the other inhabitants of Poros as either stupid or rude. Do you remember shouting at me after the fight at Sultona? Don't. Was it for this that I saved you from the spider? I heard you and stayed my sting. Yet when I answered you, you gave no heed. It has always been thus. Cupians and Formians alike have never replied when spoken to by Hymernians, or bees as you call us. Why is it, I ask you in turn? Stop this whistling, interjected Poblath, and tell us what it is all about. Cabot, being tuned to another wavelength, did not hear him. The bee, however, heard and informed Cabot, who obligingly shifted his controls and explained. As I figure it out, he said, these bees can send and receive on either of two different wavelengths. One of these is about the same as that of Cupian speech, and on this the bees merely whistle, so that whistling is the only sound which you ever hear them utter. On the other wavelength they talk, but as this is outside the range of your antenna, you never hear it. But they can hear you talk when they are tuned to receive the whistles of their own breed, and I can both hear them and send to them by tuning my artificial speech organs to their higher wavelength. It sounds plausible, Toran assented judiciously. The others were astounded. Then, tuning back to the shorter wavelength, the Earthman continued his conversation with the bee. If you Hymernians have the intelligence to understand and to talk our language, how is it that you have no more sense than to attack the Ant-Men, whose rifles render them invincible against you? 
I know not, Portheris replied, save that we cannot resist a fight. I suppose it is for the same reason that smaller insects seek a light, only to be destroyed. Then, if you must fight, Cabot suggested, why do you not fight in swarms, and thus overwhelm your adversaries by sheer weight of numbers? It never occurred to any of us, the bee answered simply. We are an independent race. We fight for the love of fighting, rather than any desire for victory. Would you consider a project whereby you could achieve more effective battles? Miles asked. Probably. What do you think, then, of this plan? I will equip each Hymernian with a fighting man armed with a rifle to ride upon his back. If you will assemble your brethren together, I will train them in the tactics of aerial battle formation. Of course, all your fighting will have to be done right side up, lest you dislodge your riders. No side slips, no spirals, no loop-the-loops. But this disadvantage will be offset by the weight of overwhelming numbers. By the way, speaking of numbers, how many Hymernians could you muster? The bee made a mental calculation. About three thousand. Fine, the Earthman ejaculated. The Formians at present cannot have more than a thousand ships. Thus, with the training which we can give you, and with the equipment which we can supply to you, you can go forth and conquer your hereditary enemies, the Ant-Men. And when you have returned victorious, you shall live at peace with the Cupians, who will breed for you special herds of the choicest green cows to satisfy your need for food. What do you say, O Hymernian? It is a wonderful plan, Portheris murmured devoutly. May the great architect speed the mending of my wing. The plan and its approval were then conveyed to the assembled Cupians, who went wild with enthusiasm at the prospect of once more regaining control of the air. It spells sure victory, Hababu soberly declared. Yes, Poblath the philosopher assented. The great architect builds to peculiar plans but the resulting edifice is perfect. Let's go, said Toron, who was beginning to pick up earth slang from Cabot. And so, a few sanks later, when Portheris had entirely recovered, he flew away to return in several days with a vast concourse of his winged brethren. It was indeed an imposing spectacle. Three thousand orange and black bees, each the size of a horse, winging their way through the air in such swarms that they obscured the silver skies and darkened the ground beneath. And the noise, Cabot alone could hear the combined hum of twelve thousand wings. But the Cupians were nearly deafened by the whistling. Finally, all the bees settled down and found resting places on the surrounding rocks. Portheris reported that all had agreed to follow him in this new undertaking, and their battle-lust was hard to restrain. There, in the presence of a large part of the Cupian army, and of his own followers, Portheris I was crowned king of the bees, and he and Toron 
concluded the treaty of alliance between Cupia and the Bee People. Cupia, at last, had an air navy. But Cupia, by no means, yet had control of the air. First, it would be necessary to discipline and train that wild and lawless winged horde. And some task it was. Cabot had to take personal charge of the instruction. For, although others could talk to the Hymernians, he was the only person on all Poros who could hear and understand their replies. And it was with great difficulty that he kept back the half-trained bees from spoiling the whole show by picking a fight with every Formian airplane which appeared. At last, however, the animate air fleet were completely subjugated and trained. All that the Cupian leaders awaited was the auspicious moment at which to strike. End of chapter 14